This podcast contains content that some listeners may find distressing. It contains depictions of real-life traumatic events, including commentary around significant injuries and death. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. Countering terrorism has been at the very core of the Australian Federal Police since the organisation was first established in 1979. But in 2002, an act of terrorism in Bali, right on Australia's doorstep, would prove to be a major turning point. For the first time, Australians understood just how close and how real the prospect of a terrorist attack was. For the AFP, they evolved overnight forming critical alliances with police jurisdictions around the country, and perhaps most importantly, with the Indonesian National Police. In doing so, they began one of the most significant operations in AFP history. I'm Ray Martin, and coming up you'll hear first-hand accounts and untold stories from some courageous men and women involved in this history-defining operation. They're stories of extraordinary teamwork. These are the stories of Operation Alliance. I think it was a, a fairly unusual situation where the AFP was undertaking a joint investigation with a law enforcement agency from another country. The Indonesian National Police investigation where they allowed the AFP to assist. Bali rewrote the book, if there was a book, about how international investigations are done. Because up to that point, international investigations were largely the purview of the jurisdiction that the, the crime had happened in with a little bit of support coming in from other countries, mostly technical expertise. All of a sudden, Bali became a joint arrangement. The scale of the Bali bombings for Op Alliance was, was it, it needed to be a team effort. The cultural difference, we needed the DFAT, we needed the linguists there. You know, the vastness and the size of the scene, we needed the bomb scenes from Vic Pole to be there with us. There was a high level of preparedness for mass casualty, but we had never attended a mass casualty event of this scale or complexity in terms of the numbers of deceased, in terms of the complexity of deployment into a foreign country and sustaining that operation for such a period of time. The investigation into the 2002 Bali bombings remains unprecedented within the ranks of the AFP. What became known as Operation Alliance would fundamentally change the organisation on so many levels. It would also change many people's opinion of just what the AFP was truly capable of. I think it was a significant event in the history of the AFP. It's fairly well known that the AFP used to be referred to as the plastics that other law enforcement agencies around Australia looked at the AFP as being over-resourced and not doing real police work. In 2002, Chris Leonard was the AFP's manager of forensic operations support. I think that attitude changed as a result of the, uh, the AFP's response to the Bali bombings. I think it showed how the AFP could coordinate a significant response to a major incident of that type, how it could quickly gain collaboration from other state and territory agencies around Australia, and overall how a major incident could actually be, be managed by the AFP. And I actually had a, an interstate colleague come up to me in Bali and, and he said to me that 
he often wondered how the Australian forensic community would respond to a major incident here in Australia. And he said that now that he saw how the AFP responded and how they coordinated the Australian response, he said he was now confident that such an incident could be handled appropriately. That clearly had changed this individual's mind in terms of what he thought of the AFP. And I think overall, it demonstrated the AFP's potential to to respond to such an incident. Some of the state services sent DVI teams. They'd rotate in and out. We had a team from Tasmania, one from South Australia and Victoria particularly, came a couple of times, I remember. Initially, some of the search and rescue people that came were from, I don't know, Western Australia and other services, but they all had the opportunity to see how the AFP functioned offshore. So they went back with a different view of the AFP. That's Andy Thorpe, who was among the first AFP investigators deployed to Bali, and one of hundreds who would ultimately become part of Operation Alliance. It was an enormous team, made up of AFP officers, alongside myriad experts from other law enforcement agencies, supporting the investigation in whatever way they could. With the death toll rising and survivors making their way back home, the AFP was suddenly faced with a new challenge, managing the vast number of Australian state and territory police who simply wanted to help. It wasn't difficult to get their support, it was difficult to manage their support. So I never felt that there was anything that I was going to get a no if I needed, and the states and territories were offering everything, but trying to manage it and control it was a little bit challenging. In 2002, Andrew Colvin was the AFP's new National Coordinator of Counterterrorism. We fell into a routine. I mean, a lot of the DVI, we didn't have the depth of expertise in DVI. There's a national capability that that exists for a good reason because we're not doing it every other day. Queensland led a lot of the DVI response. All the jurisdictions came into line and, and gave me resources that we put onto a roster that they helped us at the airports, they helped us do interviews, they helped us track down survivors, families, and they helped us have the difficult conversations that we needed to have. And in terms of while we're still compiling a brief of evidence in Indonesia, a shadow brief, if you like, here, we're doing all the other things. We're also trying to work out, do we have a threat in Australia? And that was where some of our intelligence agency partners were very focused is if this has happened in Indonesia and Bali, could it happen here in Australia? And the state police came to the table. So they gave investigators and we started to manage a national police intelligence investigation. Today, Peter Crozier is an AFP assistant commissioner. Back in 2002, Peter was a sergeant attached to ACT policing. He began working with Operation Alliance in November of that year. He really was taken aback by the way everyone involved in the investigation worked together. You saw people at their absolute best. I don't know if the organisation realised the value and what, what sort of levels of expertise we had. Unless you were working with someone who was involved in bomb data, bomb intelligence, unless you were working closely with someone who was doing criminalistics or chemical criminalistics or DVI or facial recognition or all that sort of stuff. If it wasn't real to you, it was distant. So you just, you knew it might've been there or individuals did, but you never saw it in actually operating. And you saw the thoroughness of people, you saw the commitment. Now it's hard to put into words the enormity of the task being faced by the Joint Operation Alliance team. Amid the October heat and humidity in Bali, AFP investigators would spend weeks alongside their Indonesian counterparts examining complex bomb sites, trying to determine what and who was responsible for the explosions. 
Yeah, it was new to me. Never worked with the INP before. Obviously, there was uh, language problems. A lot of the time we were working, especially in the early days, we were working through interpreters. I found actually after the interpreters left and we could talk one-on-one with the INP members, it was just police to police. Things started to work a lot better. And I suppose when they realised that we were just there to help them with the investigation, we weren't trying to take their investigation from them, whether it be the scene or the hospital or anywhere down the track. Mick Travers was one of the first AFP officers deployed to Bali. Mick was tasked with assisting the Indonesian National Police to recover human remains as well as critical evidence that would help towards the investigation. I'm sure they were under huge pressure. Bali relies on tourism and why, you know, you know Jalal Legi and, you know, one of the main tourist streets is closed. There's no tourists. They, they wanted to, you know, the, the Balinese people wanted it to be over, I suppose, and, and for them to be able to get on with their lives, whereas we wanted to make sure from a, an AFP and Australian point of view that the absolute most thorough investigation could take place. Remember, there were other countries there as well, and I think that helped. I, I know we had Japanese forensic members who, who worked at the scene with us for a, a while too, so I think the Indonesians realised it wasn't just Australia trying to push something on them. It was the rest of the world, especially of those who'd been impacted by the death of their citizens who wanted to help the, uh, the IMP and therefore the Balinese and the Indonesians to get results and get the offenders. With each passing day, pressure was mounting on DVI teams to provide information about loved ones to grieving families. Hundreds of post-mortem examinations were being conducted in Bali, along with many more anti-mortem collections in both Indonesia and Australia. AFP officers, along with their state and territory counterparts, collected 600 witness statements from travellers arriving back in Australia from Bali, along with other vital evidence such as films and video footage. It all needed to be processed quickly. Meanwhile, forensic teams had 46 separate crime scenes to assess across Bali, Java and Sulawesi, which resulted in close to 3,000 forensic exhibits and samples being obtained. It was by any measure an extraordinary team effort involving many, many long hours. We're talking about 14, 15 hours a day, seven days a week for the first two months. Uh, Most of my team were working about 12 hours a day seven days a week. And remember, we weren't just doing the disaster victim identification part of the Bali bombing. We were also doing the DNA analysis for the criminal investigation. And we were also running the DNA analysis for the forensic science normal cases. So all of these competing priorities were at play, trying to get the deceased identified, the samples for the investigation and maintain a normal workflow. Lindsay Wilson-Wild was the team leader of biological criminalistics at the AFP. I had a small team in the biological criminalistics and I knew I wasn't going to be able to meet the expectations and turnaround times that were going to be required given that I had 11 people. And we didn't have the legislation in place either, so I couldn't send samples out to other jurisdictions. They had to be done in Canberra. So I asked my counterparts and they answered the call. They sent scientists to Canberra to help us. So we had about 50 scientists on the case, and these were just DNA, DNA scientists working on the case, and they would rotate in. And I also had to send a biologist to Bali to advise and ensure we had the right samples coming in. The work that was done by our forensic biologists back here, just doing that was incredible. In fact, it wasn't just the AFP. There was certainly scientists from all over Australia worked together. 
David Royds led the AFP's forensic chemistry team, which at the time comprised just five people. Australia's forensic community was quick to lend its support. All scientists around Australia were using techniques and procedures which they were familiar with that had been tried and tested by other laboratories and so forth. So this allowed us to do a thing called interoperability, which means that scientists from other laboratories could actually come to our laboratory and just pick up the the tools and just start work straight away without any induction or training or whatever because they were effectively trained. We're all effectively using pretty much the same procedures. So we had many, many scientists from Victoria, from Tasmania, from Queensland, from Western Australia, Northern Territory, South Australia, all working in our laboratory from time to time, helping with this massive great task. And it was a, um, a really wonderful example of interoperability working well. As the Operation Alliance investigation picked up pace, what also needed to work well was the cooperation between Australian forensic teams and the Bali Police Forensic Laboratory, known as Lab 4. The relationship with Lab 4 was pretty much a partnership. Everything we did was in consultation with Lab 4. So we had a team of crime scene examiners and they had the same team make up. So we were working together. We had a great relationship with Lab 4, to be honest. Annie Lamb was an AFP crime scene investigator and one of the first Australians deployed to Bali to assist the Indonesian forensic team. They were really appreciative that we were there and obviously some of the equipment that we brought they didn't have. So, you know, it was not only conducting the examination but also letting them know what we were doing at the same time. They had obviously chemists as well, so when we were working in their facilities at their police station, we worked with those members. If we were out in the field... Lab 4 had their different members deployed. So, you know, I I worked with quite a number of them in the different roles. Annie was one of just a handful of female crime scene examiners assisting the Lab 4 team. Another was Dr Sarah Benson. Whenever we were working together, it was because we knew we could complement each other with what we brought to a problem. Lab 4 had that knowledge of explosives and and how to analyse samples what they might be looking for because they'd come across explosives in their criminal environment before. I didn't have that hands-on operational experience, but I did have this theoretical knowledge. I did have this new whiz-bang technology. I did have this training that I'd done in these new types of explosives and different types of explosives and trying to combine them together. I think that's where we struck up this respect between us is we can work together to solve this problem. I think when you look at it that way, through that lens, there's less rub, there's less concern on trust or any of those aspects and and fully recognising that we were there to support. We as the AFP didn't have jurisdiction, we're there to support the international effort led by the IMP of which Lab 4 was the forensic component. So respecting that, recognising that helps with all of those things. For the investigation to move forward at the rate it needed, collaboration between AFP Forensics and Indonesia's Lab 4 would be critical. It would also mean having to address some cultural challenges, as Carl Kent, the head of ACT Forensic Operations, observed. That was uncommon in Indonesia to have a senior female crime scene investigator. That was not really a a role that, that at that particular time in Indonesia a senior woman might perform. So... It was those sort of factors that challenged 
relationship and how would an Indonesian police officer take or a crime scene officer from Lab 4 take a direction from a senior female crime scene officer. Those sort of things were interesting challenges at different times. But also we had very different capabilities. We had some high-tech capabilities that at that time had not been implemented in Indonesia. So we were able to do some aspects of in-the-field analytics, very rapid analytics. People like David Royds and co are fantastic at identifying post-blast materials from the scene very quickly with those techniques. And so it was a really important interface that that, that, that relationship wasn't because of those different capabilities that they weren't seen as being inferior in terms of the investigative role. Of course, they were not, but it was very, very important that that trust got built and we were able to work effectively together, which was for many months, (laughs) and then extended into large-scale capability work, capability on capacity building with the INP for many years to come after that. The October 2002 Bali bombings occurred just a few months after a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU, was signed between the AFP and Indonesia's National Police. Dr. Benny Mamoto is a former high-ranking member of the INP. At the time of the bombings, he was pursuing terrorist networks across Southeast Asia, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And Dr. Mamoto says the importance of that MOU cannot be understated. So this relationship had indeed already been established beforehand. However, at the time of Bali bombing, the relationship became critical. The meetings between Commissioner Mikilti, the head of the National Police General Goris Meri, and General Madimanku Pastika were vital to enable smooth cooperation at the lower levels. The assistance was even greater in operational connections undertaken by the joint investigation. The relationship was committed to combating this terrorism problem and we shared the same enthusiasm. Now that enthusiasm sparked an unrelenting desire for justice and the pursuit by Australian and Indonesian investigators to find those responsible. That pursuit would lead them to members of a terrorist cell called Jamaa Islamiyah, otherwise known as JI, an extremist group with deep connections to Al-Qaeda and operating within Southeast Asia. JI had already come to the attention of the intelligence community, although for Andrew Colvin and the AFP's counterterrorism team, this was the beginning of a steep learning curve. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we didn't know much at all, but we didn't have a reason to know Our sisters in the intelligence community knew a lot more and that was their job to know that. But it hadn't, terrorism hadn't really transitioned from being an intelligence and a national security issue to a policing issue. It was still being held as an intelligence issue. So yeah, Jamaa Rizalmiya was known and there were aspects of it that were, that needed to be investigated in Australia as well. That all of a sudden came very much onto our radar and we had to learn a lot more. And yeah, again, the Indonesian police taught us an enormous amount. They knew about the network. They probably didn't describe it the way that we did or we eventually did, but their intelligence, their understanding was amazing. As the investigation continued, teams of forensic experts from Australia and Indonesia had been collecting DNA evidence and human remains from the bomb sites in the belief that someone, somewhere, would find a clue leading to the identity of the killers. 
For Ben McDevitt, the AFP's General Manager of National Operations at the time, a critical breakthrough came from an unexpected source. Being in the mortuary at a particular point in time with a couple of photo fit specialists from Victoria Police when the task was a very gruesome task and it was trying to actually put together the face of the suicide bomber who had killed himself in Paddy's bar and actually watching these people holding up pieces of skin and bone and trying to place it together so that these Victorian police photo fit experts could actually draw a composite of what that person looked like. And that'll always stick in my mind. And guess what? They did a good enough likeness that he was identified. That's quite extraordinary. Graham Ashton was the forward commander in Bali. Normally based out of the AFP office in Melbourne, Graham was aware of the new photo fit technology being developed. At that time, Victoria Police was pioneering, really, a new sort of computer technology to photo fits, something called FACE technology, facial automated, something or other, you know, uh, had an acronym FACE. They were sort of pioneering that so they could give you almost a 3D computer image of someone rather than a sketch drawing. There was a big advance in, at that time, and Victoria Police was good enough to make them available to us. They sent up the team to Bali. That team did a great job, not only on that photo fit, but the uh, photo fits they put together of the three suspects we had on the motorbike, because they really just ended up being spinning images of the terrorists that we caught. DVI expert Ken Ra says that the ID for the digital photo fits was consistent with what they'd found at Paddy's Bar, and that later aligned with DNA samples taken from the suspect's family members. They've got the, the two legs and basically a part of the head what they did to try and reconstruct was the head was pretty well mangled and they actually stuffed it with newspaper to pad it out and then photographed it and got a photograph of who they thought was the person and, they, and then they did a composite photo and compared it all. When we actually found that body, it wasn't for, oh, it was a couple of weeks by the time we actually got to that body in the, in the system. We found the legs and that actually, whoever did the recovery from Paddy's, actually put them both, put both legs and the head into the same bag, which was quite amazing, we thought. And eventually we matched them all back with, uh, with DNA. But the condition of the remains with the legs and the head was consistent with him having a backpack and detonating a backpack. I think we had uh, one of our people with uh, AFP and a few, a few of the locals actually went to an island somewhere where Iqbal had actually come from to get DNA samples from the family to match it up to finally get the uh, positive ID. So it was uh, very complex and complicated, but we just persevere until we get a result. Perseverance and patience are key factors in any investigation. Yet just a few weeks in, the Operation Alliance team were already starting to see some significant breakthroughs, as Graham Ashton recalls. For me, there were probably two breakthrough moments in the investigation in terms of catching those responsible or at least identifying them. The first was the motorbike that was found outside a mosque not far from the crime scene. We did find an eyewitness account and we took thousands of statements. The AFP officers around the country and, and in Bali um, took thousands of statements from witnesses. And a big job of the intel team was putting that together, looking for 
potential leads and cross matches. And one of the things they did find that was interesting was that three people were seen on a motorbike leaving the scene that looked a bit suspicious. The other thing that was suspicious to them was that the headlight was working and the tail light wasn't working. That piqued the interest of intel officers and then investigators. So we had this motorbike with these three people on it as a bit of a lead to try to follow up. And then a motorbike was found outside a mosque abandoned. The Indonesian police responded to that and sure enough, this uh, motorbike had had a wiring changes made to it to isolate the tail light and the switch for the headlights. And then we were able to track that motorbike back to a dealership, again in, in Bali. And when uh, investigators spoke with the people at the dealership, they immediately remembered the sale. And um, there was a reason that they remembered the sale and that was because the people had not tried to barter the price, they just paid cash straight away for the motorbike and they thought that was pretty unusual, these guys. So it sort of stuck in their mind. And again, with our photo fit people, they were able to provide um, descriptions of the three and those three descriptions were, were incredible as to how detailed they were and how accurate they ultimately were. That was one key lead. While that was happening, we had a forensic breakthrough with the uh, crime scene vehicle that ultimately dovetailed into that first lead. We found the chassis of the van that contained the major explosive at the Sari Club site. We found the engine for that on the roof of a bank across the road, and that was examined by Indonesian forensics, Australian forensics, a couple of times. The engine number had been filed off, perhaps not unexpectedly, so we had trouble finding an identification for that vehicle. It was a bit of a dead end. A diligent uh, Indonesian forensic officer, having like the fifth, fifth time over the engine, Noticed there was a piece of small piece of metal welded onto the actual engine block, which he thought looked a bit unusual. So he had a chip at that with a chisel and a hammer. That chipped away, and then underneath there was a number imprinted on the engine. And it wasn't the engine number, it was something called a DPR number, which was a number when you registered vehicles in Bali at one time. You had to have what's called a DPR number or a commercial registration number on the engine. So that was a major breakthrough in terms of identifying the vehicle. So uh, yeah, Indonesian police raced down to the Tempasar Motor Vehicle Registry, found the number, and then it was a pretty quick exercise to say uh, when it was first registered under this number in Bali, it belonged to this person, went and saw that person. He'd sold the vehicle you know, eight years ago. And they went through about five different owners, chasing them down over a period of about sort of 12 hours. And then finally they learned that the uh, what appeared to be the most recent person that purchased it was a fellow called Amrosi. And once they knew that name, well, things started to gel because they knew of an Amrosi connected to Jamal Samir. They had an address in East Java for him. And his face jumped out of the photo fit that the car dealership had provided, the motorbike dealership had provided of one of the people that was at the purchase of the motorbike. So Indonesian police raced over to arrest Amrosi. Sure enough, he was there. He was there. It wasn't uh, accompanied by other members of the that were on the photo fit, but um, turned out that he was, you know, there was his brothers involved and uh, others were involved and they were on this photo fit as well. So uh, he was transported to Bali, interrogated by the Indonesian police at that time. So, and then that led us on getting more evidence from the searches. We found the, where the, the bomb was constructed and we, you know, those, those other leads then quickly flowed from that and we had enough evidence to, for him to be charged and ultimately for, for the others to be pursued and captured uh, as well. The arrest of Amrosi would prove a major turning point in the investigation. Although, as Dr. Benny Bamoto explains, 
Getting Ambrose's confession would still take some time. Firstly, the key to unlocking it was Ambrose's confession. So when he was caught, he remained silent for 15 hours. He didn't want to speak. I got a phone call from Mr. Goris Mary to come to Surabaya to interrogate Amrozi. After approximately two hours, he finally confessed and explained who was involved. Starting from there, we began to identify. That's where the help of the AFP was very, very advantageous, namely with the use of technology, how we could track the whereabouts of the handphones and how we could discern the communication network. That was the first time we got technological assistance with the result that we could quickly track down the whereabouts of the suspects. Because without that, we were still doing everything manually. At the time, technology had no impact in Indonesia. But thanks to the help of the AFP, we were able to use technology with the result that we could quickly arrest the first Bali bomb suspects, one by one. With the investigation now picking up pace, the Operation Alliance team was rapidly putting together the pieces of the forensic jigsaw puzzle to identify more suspects. As Annie Lamb explains, no detail was too small. We were going into hotel rooms where the suspects were using to plan, were having meetings in hotel rooms. So immediately, of course, when you check out of hotel, it, ha- it becomes, it's cleaned. So we were essentially going into a clean hotel room. So all we were doing at those places was doing trace DNA swabs of all the, the high traffic areas, so inside doorknob, tap handles, just to prove the presence of someone in there. We went to other scenes in Jakarta where they were using these scenes to draw the designs, build the bombs, get the chemicals together. And in a lot of those places, their toothbrushes were still there. They had papers and newspapers. There were drawings. There were writings from their planning material. So whilst they tried to pack up, some of these places still had physical evidence and forensic evidence there. I remember in one of the meeting places, there was newspaper on the floor and one of the newspapers, uh, when we treated them in the lab with the chemical treatment, a footprint came up and it was a footprint of one of the suspects from the chemical treatment. But also when we collect the toothbrushes where they left behind, toothbrushes are something that has a high yield DNA. We get their DNA profiles from their toothbrushes. When it comes to forensic science, sometimes the tiniest detail can yield the greatest results. I was at the Renon site collecting debris, bits of debris that were collecting uh, millimetres. You're using a dustpan, you know, to collect, but where we had to zone an, an area. So you're literally on your hands and knees collecting debris. But when we back, went back to the hotel and we're looking at that in our lab conditions that we set up, there was a piece of a SIM card in there and a mobile phone. Those tiny fragments would soon be identified as coming from a Nokia 5110 mobile phone used to detonate the explosive device outside the US consulate. And that evidence would eventually lead the Operation Alliance team to another suspect, Ali Imran, who was arrested in January 2003. Certainly as we moved into 2003, There was continuing investigations that were undertaken both in Jakarta and Bali in terms of the information that we were obtaining and very much our people were deploying 
right to the front line in the field in terms of affecting those arrests. So with Alwi Imran, certainly he was one of the individuals that we arrested in Kalamanta. And then he was a key individual for us in terms of bringing him back down to Bali. Scott Lee, who's now the AFP's Assistant Commissioner for Counterterrorism and Special Investigations, was part of the Operation Alliance team that interviewed Ali Imran at Karobakan Prison. The Ali Imran arrest was one of those key arrests in terms of how we identified the premises in terms of where the vehicle-borne IED that went to the Surrey Club and also the suicide vest for Paddy's was constructed. Those were very much key developments in the investigation and also the reconstruction of the device that went into the van for the Surrey Club and very much how Alwi Imran described to us about how that device was constructed, which we also had an individual with us who was from the Australian Bob Data Centre at that time, an AFP officer. And again, there were some key developments from that reconstruction, which really, given that the, the way they described or he described the way that device had been constructed, very much matched our assessments of the crime scene around how the device detonated and the damage that was caused to the Surrey Club and why the fatalities were so high um, in that location. Certainly from my own perspective, there was a level of anger there in terms of the way he very calmly described what had occurred, the way the device was deployed and driven to the site, etc. Nathan Green was a young crime scene examiner working out of the AFP Sydney office. He deployed to Bali and was sent to accompany Scott Lee to Corobican Prison in order to record an interview with Imran and Amrosi. The purpose of the conversation was around the construction of the device. We were very confident based on the evidence what the device was that was used in Paddy's bar to cause the initial stampede out into the street. But the, the van that was the main charge outside the Sari Club obviously destroyed the van and a significant portion of everything else around it. Based on some testimony and some intelligence and the analysis that was done by forensics and our Indonesian counterparts. We had a pretty good idea. When I say we, the, the weapons and technical intelligence, the bomb data center experts had a very good idea of how the device must have been constructed. And that was basically put to the bombers by the investigations team under Scott Lee. We were seeking basically their endorsement, I guess, of whether it was right or wrong. So it was a, it was a very... Um, technical focused discussion around how the events occurred, you know, where were the triggers of the device? What were the triggers? Where was the staging point? We were sitting at a table three feet away from the alleged Bali bombers. And it was a surreal feeling that that these people were the alleged masterminds behind the murder of 202 people, including 88 Australians. And it was just nothing that I'd been prepared for. It sticks with me to this day. There was no evil about them. You'd walk past them in the street. They look like any of the hundreds of friendly Indonesians that we were dealing with every day. They look like the police that were were helping us out. They didn't reek of evil. They didn't have an evil glint in their eyes. They smiled when they were talking to us. They looked like normal people. You would never have thought it. But I remember it challenged me. Like I remember sitting there feeling very, very angry that they were allegedly responsible for what had occurred and the reason we were there. But they just looked like normal people. Closure is a word that's often bandied about and in some cases overused. 
But it can be said that the dedication, commitment and extraordinary teamwork of those involved in Operation Alliance in finding and arresting those responsible for this deadly atrocity would bring some form of closure to the survivors and the families who lost loved ones. AFP Family Liaison Officer Mike Nicholas says it was important for the survivors to see justice finally served. Although we had a few of the perpetrators convicted, there were still quite a few at large. Right up till 2011 was when um, one of the suspects in the bombing, a guy by the name of Umar Patek, was apprehended in Pakistan, I believe. He was extradited back to Jakarta and he was going to face trial in Jakarta and they had made a decision that they needed some Australian victim impact statements or victims to give evidence at his trial. So three Australian victims went across to Jakarta for the trial and they gave evidence. In 2012, Umar Patek was sentenced to 20 years jail for his role in the Bali bombings. He was granted early release after serving just 10 years. The spiritual leader of Jamaa Islamiyah, Abu Bakr Bashir, was released from prison in Indonesia in 2021 after serving two-thirds of a 15-year sentence for terrorist offences. He's denied any involvement in the Bali bombings. Ali Imran would be spared the firing squad for repeatedly showing remorse and cooperating with police. He remains behind bars for his role in the attacks. Ali Imran's brothers Muklas, Amrozi and Imam Samudra would be executed on November 9, 2008. The so-called mastermind behind the attacks, Hambali, was captured in Thailand in August 2003. He remains behind bars at Guantanamo Bay, where he's facing a US military tribunal for orchestrating the bombings in Bali, as well as the JW Marriott Jakarta bombing in 2003. In what can only be described as an eerie experience, Ken Raff, who was in Bali working on victim identification, had his own encounter with Hambali, although at the time Ken had no idea who he'd come in contact with. When we first went up to Bali, we, they put us in a hotel out near Kuta Beach at the end of Poppy's Lane. Two units downstairs, two upstairs and a shared balcony. We had armed guards around the place everywhere we went and we went into this hotel and my air conditioning wasn't working and there wasn't another room available and it was about 45 degrees in my room so I'd just sit out on the balcony. Even though we were supposed to be locked in the room, I thought, well, I'd rather see something coming if, we're, if I was going to be attacked. There was a little Indonesian guy in the room next to me that was sitting out in the balcony. I'd try and have a conversation with him, but I'm sure he understood me, but I couldn't understand him. The investigators had moved out and we went to the counter and they said, oh, no, they've moved to another hotel. They'll pick you up in the morning and move you to the other hotel where the security's better. I thought, OK. Moved to that one the next day. After two weeks, we had to go home again. When I came back, I got off the plane and Graham Ashton, who was the uh, AFP commander, called me aside and said, I've got something very disturbing to tell you. I go, oh no, something's happened at home. Yeah, my wife's sick. Oh, what's, what's going on, what's going on? And he said, no, no, nothing like that. He said, do you know who that Indonesian guy in the room next to you was at the first hotel? And I said, no idea. I couldn't really converse with him. And he said, that was Hambali. And I said, what? <laughs> so he was one of the organisers. He's now in Guantanamo Bay, but I had absolutely no idea. 
And that's one thing that really sticks with me that I was actually sharing a balcony and conversing with one of the guys that actually organised the, the, the whole terrorist attack. And, and that's one thing that's really hard to sort of, what would I have done? Yeah, and I think of it often, what would I have done if I'd have known at the time? Um, yeah, so that sort of stands out more so than the, the actual uh, dealing with all the, the death and the, and the mayhem uh, in the mortuary. October 12, 2022 marks the 20th anniversary of the tragic events that took place in Bali, where 202 lives were taken and hundreds more damaged and forever broken. For the AFP, the victims and their families will never be forgotten, and neither will the lessons learned from that time. Lessons that have shaped the AFP's capabilities in counter-terrorism, forensic science, disaster victim identification, and family liaison. In the next episode, we explore how the AFP is working to help prevent the next phase in the evolution of terrorism. There's no doubt that our response to the original Bali bombing and what has occurred since then in terms of our joint investigations and the collaboration between the two services over the past 20 years has just continued to strengthen that relationship not only in terms of our counterterrorism efforts, but across the full spectrum of what we do for policing. I think the Bali bombing really brought AFP forensics into the fore and made them a justifiable laboratory with skills and expertise that is well respected. And I think that's tantamount to their response. I, I think they earned the reputation and they, they deserve it. So we're dealing with multiple national security issues. And that's where the AFP now is front and centre in combating those threats and working with all the agencies. So for us, we have to have that capability. We have to keep investing in our people and in technology and being innovative, you know, and adaptive and agile. And we look at the impact the Bali bombings had on some of the men and women of Operation Alliance as they reflect on their lasting memories from this history-defining period. That's a, a point in time when we, you know, we really, oh, I don't know, turned the corner, but perhaps started walking uphill, just that little bit prouder of the organisation that we, you know, we were then and we, we've achieved now. The opinions, beliefs and viewpoints expressed by the individuals featured in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs and viewpoints of the AFP. If the content in this podcast has caused you any distress, please contact Lifeline for support on 13 11 14. Operation Alliance, the 2002 Bali bombings is a production of the AFP. Written and researched by Nicole Gunn and Dave Carter. Audio production by Pro Podcast Production. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Mediaheads. If you found this podcast informative, please take the time to share it, write a review and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. To learn more about the work of the AFP, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn or visit the website afp.gov.au forward slash careers.